There's one thing that really is indicative of, of a maturing believer. If I were to ask you, what does a mature believer look like? What does maturity begin to look like? I say begin to look like because no one's arrived, achieved maturity. But what does maturity look like? Part of it is is growing. I thought about that because when Glenn and Jerry talked about their, their, their flooding incident, it, how you respond to it, it indicates a level of maturity in how you respond to it. You know, if you're if you're not well settled and well established, it's like the sky is falling, literally. <laughs> the roof is falling, right? This 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 is the end of the world. This is terrible. Oh, is is, and it's everything's it's super dramatic. Someone who's been there, well, it's, ah, it's just drywall, you know, and and you move on. You know, you have that perspective. One big indicator uh, of maturity is if you took the, if you take the two extremes of a child, one thing that, that characterizes a child is a child is extremely self-focused. That's a child. It's my toys. It's my time. It's what am I doing? When you go out to eat, is what I want to eat. It's I don't like that food. Uh, it's I've seen that movie already. I don't like this game. I mean, a child is extremely self-focused. What you hope is they don't stay extremely self-focused and they grow mature, have a broader perspective. They start seeing others, other people's needs. What you realize is you can grow older and stay very immature in your way of looking at others in life. People go to church and look at church and they don't think, man, how can I come and, Lord, show me how I can serve this church. You come in and go in thinking, how can this church serve me? I mean, it's, it's, so there's a maturing there. So part of, part of this is just helping us grow as a class, giving us tools to do that because uh, we're a different group every Sunday, how to connect. And if you're, you know, yes, this is not a, a membership thing. So if you're, if you're not here, you know, you get a warning and you'll get your face taken off or I put a clown face instead. I'll be your first sign that something's wrong. Um, no, it's just, hey, in six months, if someone hasn't been here, we just, we just, we just take them off because they, they don't want to be part of this fellowship and they're doing something else. There's no, no, no problem there. It's just trying to give us tools to, to do that. So let me go ahead. Mark, you're my trusted helper here, if you don't mind. I'll give you half and give Nathan the other half, if you don't mind. So just, if you don't mind, take them one per couple and either pass them around and, and then bring them back one <laughs> Yes. So... We've gone through these a number of times, so there's blank pages here for um, for things can change, add couples you meet that are not here, and and try to to develop and, and grow grow that. All right, while you're looking at that, let's go ahead and go to Psalm 119, verse 129. I I'm I'm blessed and encouraged by by every. Every stanza we go to. So, I could have put the spelling here. I mean, I could, the pronunciation is pay. First thing I say, man, I know it's not P, and, and I'm thankfully we don't have young children here because they would have a hard time saying that without grinning, but it's pronounced pay. And our eight verses here, and he, he brings out something here that, that is, again, every, every stanza, right? Thank you, sir. Yeah, I've got one. Matter of fact, I know she wants to look at the. Oh. 
I know some are here. I'll, bring, I'll have them next week available for those who, who are not here today and, and pick them from there. So don't, I don't hear no gasp when you see pictures. Just, just, just be cool. All right. He brings out something a little bit different here. He's been talking about, remember last time we talked about the oppressors and the oppressed and being under oppression. He ends the stanza with, with, when you read it, he ends with a very marking statement and a, and a very helpful. I'm going to start there, actually, and work, work my way backwards a little bit in, in our stanza. But let's go ahead and read it first, eight verses, and, and take our time walking through this. I, I thought, I'm trying to keep everything in a stanza, but... I, not just for today's time, overall, there's just a lot of things I'd like to, to bring out. So let's read it, verse 129. He says, Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words give light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Now, I'm breaking it up here. As you see, I broke it down even in our in the verses up here on the screen, so you can see, first of all, there's, there's three affirmations in these first three verses. Then there's five petitions in the following verses, and then there's a concluding verse in 136. So we have three affirmations in verse 129 through 131. Then we have five petitions in verse 132. It says, Turn to me, be gracious to me, as in your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise. And let no iniquity get dominion over me. Redeem me from man's oppression, that I may keep your precepts. Make your face shine upon your servant, and teach me your statutes. My eyes shed streams of tears. This is where he he adds an angle to the to his uh, feeling towards the oppressed and towards. Those who break the law. He says, why? Because people do not keep your, your law. So as I mentioned, we have first three affirmations. We're going to see those in just a moment. God's word, he declares how his word is wonderful. His word gives light. And his word uh, is insatiable. It's, and we'll describe those three areas in those first three uh, verses. Then he gives us five, five petitions, beginning with, uh, verse 132, that uh, the Lord would be gracious, and we'll walk through those those five petitions. But I want to look at 136 and then back up a little bit to explain what he means by that and how he comes to that point in his heart and mind to express himself in, in such a way. My eyes shed streams of tears. It's it's very emotional statement. It's not just, hey, uh, man, I've... I feel bad about this. I grieve about this. It makes me upset. It bothers me. It disturbs me. He describes something a lot more intense. And it summarizes the psalmist's reaction to the enemies of God, of both God. Now, the, the, the split parts of here, what we're going to see is that on one hand, we have, he gives an affirmation about the word of God in the first three verses. Then in the uh, following four verses, he gives petitions delivered to the God of the Word. So first he has affirmations about God's Word, then he makes petitions to the God of the Word. And when you bring those things, he says, he summarizes in verse 136, by his reaction to the enemies of both God and his Word. Meaning, one and the other are, are the same. Those who oppose God and oppose are those who oppose his Word. Those who oppose his Word are those who 
oppose God. The psalmist sees them as one and the same. And I, I, I put that down here because isn't it easy for, for people to make a distinction where God does not make a distinction? Meaning, we can, we can view God's word as something that is we study and examine, but we don't, we don't always have a problem being uh, opposed to God's word, and we don't think that somehow we're opposing God in doing so. We don't embrace his word as if we're embracing God, and we don't push back on his word as if we're pushing back on God. And, and, and many times we find people that are, find themselves in, in, in this contradiction of thought. Well, I know what the Bible says, but I love God. The, the psalmist is making affirmations about God's word, and then he makes petitions to the God of that same word. Then he grieves over what? People who reject God and who find themselves in opposition. He says, those who do not keep his, his law. Of course, it's, it catches our attention, and I, I put down even questions for myself first. And we'll come back, we'll wrap back around at the end again, but... The first thing, of course, is, is simple to question for myself is when's the last time I've wept over sin, the sin of others? When's the last time I've been grieved? What we're going to see actually here by the psalmist is that his, the depth of his passion for God and God's word is why he's grieved to the extent that he is when others are not submissive to it and other abide to it. I mean, his, his love for the word is such that he cannot be indifferent with those who reject, and that grieves him to see people. And we see that as a shepherd from an unbeliever perspective, because as an unbeliever rejects God's word, he it's to his own damnation. But even when believers reject God's word, it's to their own self-destruction. And I, I've been grieved many times, sitting there just to feel the, the weight of the grief and he feels it here, but he feels it because of the depth of his passion and love for God and God's word. And his response to that is streams of tears flow when he sees those who break his law. And truth be told from our own life and our own hearts, if our indifference to others' sin is, a, is an indicator of how passionate we are about God's word. And then we go back to the idea of being, what does it mean to, to, to be a mature believer, to, to maturing in, 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 in our faith and our walk. As we, there's an immature level of Christianity that says, well, I'm going to do my thing. As long as I'm faithful and do my thing, then, hey, if, if he's not faithful, that's, that's his deal. That's, that's between him and God. You know, who am I to say? And really, I don't care much more than that about that person. So as long as they're saved and we're, we're comfortable with the idea that we're saved, but if they're never living for the Lord, hey, I mean, everybody's got to make their own decisions. I'm doing good. But that, that's, a very, that's a very immature position as a believer. As you grow in maturity, as you grow in love and passion for the word, you are not indifferent when others break the law. Not because of who they are, but because of your passion for the word. So he, he, he builds on that, and he, he, he brings us to that point. So let's look at first the, the three affirmations that he makes. The first one in verse 129. Three affirmations regarding God's word, and then three petitions to the God of the word. So what we see is that the more these are true in his own life, the more he grieves when they're not visible in others. The first one is God's word is wonderful. 
They are a, a wonder to behold. They are a treasure to cherish and to possess. I don't know how you pronounce this last name. If Kevin was here, I'd ask him, Mr. Brown. Matire, Nathan, how do you pronounce that guy's name here? Matire. He's an Irish theologian, so I thought Kevin would be happy that, you know, if I quote the French from the pulpit, I need to quote the Irish from time, sometimes too. But there aren't that many of them, so, you, you know, I, I, I quote them when I can. So he says the word wonderful describes something that is out of this world, meaning su- supernatural extraordinary or miraculous in nature so when he says his word is wonderful it's not from a worldly perspective that says well the man the i, I could appreciate the word of god i mean love love your enemies that's a beautiful saying and we could have all these little pretty quotes that make all these little pretty crafts on etsy all that's really nice but he says something much more than that when he says your testimonies are wonderful meaning they're out of this world they're miraculous they're extraordinary he used the same word in Isaiah 9 when he says that when the Lord, he says his name shall be called wonderful. The same word being used there, a description <clears throat> of God. And he says you'll, you'll be called a wonderful counselor, extraordinary, beautiful, one that is that was cherished. So the first affirmation is God's word is wonderful, to be cherished as something miraculous out of this world. Two, he says God's word gives light. Second affirmation, verse 130. Willem describes it this way. He said, when the door is open to God's word, even those inexperienced in the realities of life, the simple, may gain wisdom and understanding. What, when you read that verse, that second verse, the second affirmation, I don't know if you have a different word. I've got the word unfolding. What, what, what does the word unfolding mean to you? When he says... I, the unfolding of your word gives light. What, what, does the, what image comes to you when he talks about the unfolding of the word? It's revealing something. Revealing. It's unfolding. It's revealing. One thing that he, he's leading to in, in describing this, about the, the, the revelation of God's word, he's talking about the ability... And, we're going, to, we're going to just mention briefly here about what he means by the simple. We can use that term in a very derogatory manner, right? The, the simpleton or the simple-minded. But reality is, faith to God's word, which is, remember, wonderful, supernatural, miraculous. We need a lot to understand it. But we need the unfolding of your word, which means we need this, this uh, illumination of the word. We are unable to understand it without the unfolding of that word. And when he describes it, it's God that's unfolding Scripture. It's him that's illuminating Scripture. Many people go to the word and can, can go to the word and study it as a, as a textbook, as a good history book, as a good resource, as many things. But here is not designed to be described in a way that's just like an academic understanding unfolding. It's a understanding. It's an illumination of the word because man has finite abilities so when he gives in this illumination and we'll see how all this walks through in a natural way right in, in, in a way that makes sense to us in the second part of the verse he says it gives what it gives understanding to the simple and here he speaks of having insight and the way it's worded it describes something that has what we would say causation meaning there's a causation described in that verse 
simply meaning this, that the illumination and the unfolding gives understanding. God's opening up the words from his word brings illumination by imparting understanding to us. It's caused by God unfolding his word to us so that we can understand it and receive it. Now, from a worldly perspective, that thing is flipped backwards, right? It's by man's ability to go and study the word. And if, we, if we're not careful, even in our own perception of what it means to study the word of God or, or communicate the gospel, we say, well, if you just look at how it makes sense, let's just walk through it and read it and study it and how it can make sense from an intellectual point of view. But that misses the point of the illumination of God unfolding it to where we have understanding, to where the simple can have... Um, it causes understanding in the mind of the simple. It unfolds, and God does this unfolding, and God does this illuminating. The term simple that's used here is characterized by a humble dependence upon God and his resources. The simple one is one who is characterized by humility, a humble dependence on God, which is, of course, the direct opposite of the haughty, and the prideful, the double-minded that we had been speaking about in the previous stanzas. So the simple person is simply someone who humbly comes before the Lord and makes himself, puts himself in a place where God illuminates him with, with his word. And the third affirmation that he makes here in verse 131 talks about the insatiable aspect of God's word. And I use that word... To describe something that can usually talk about how the Word of God is fully satisfied, here actually is described in a way that almost describes the opposite. Not because it doesn't satisfy, but because I never reached the end of that satisfaction. In other words, it's not like I come to the point where this, there's this, um, he describes a picture, right? I open my mouth and I pant uh, because I long for your commandments. Of course, we think of Psalm 42, probably, I wrote it here, but as a deer pants for flowing streams. So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God and the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Of course, God, in, 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 a, in a direct sense, satisfies completely. Of course he does. But what he's describing and doing this is simply that it's this flowing stream that he's there just panting and taking it in and taking it in and taking it in. Martin Luther translates this passage by say he says this. He says, the, the psalmist opens his mouth to be taught rather than to teach. And he paraphrases this way. He says, I have opened my mouth that I might not want to offer what is mine, but desire to receive what is yours. I added there that God's word was more than just leading to life. God's word was life itself. It's not just God's word leading to and understanding, leading to life. He describes it as God's word being life itself and the, being that receptacle of, of God's illuminated truth. So he makes, he makes three strong affirmations about God's word, and then he brings about five petitions. And we probably won't get through all of these petitions, but we see five, and, and this, these petitions are predicated upon the fact that he sees himself as a servant of God. We see that in verse 135. He says, make your face shine upon your servant. As there's a servant, there's a master. And as the desire as a servant would be that his master's will be done. 
that his reputation be honored and uplifted, that of the master. So his response, here's, here's the key piece I want us to, 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 to remember as he um, makes these petitions. These petitions are indicative of the elimination that he received. These petitions are indicative and are a reflection of the elimination that he received from God. So now his petitions are right and just, and he couldn't make those petitions if God had not illuminated his heart to have the understanding of this is what his need is. That that makes sense? Because as I'm saying this, I hope it makes sense because I get lost in my own thoughts, right? Simply saying this, as, as, as he makes these statements about his response to God and his petitions to God, these petitions are an indicator or indicative of what God has revealed to him. And they're the fruit of God's illumination. Man cannot cry out to God and say, God, be gracious to me without understanding, without God opening his heart and mind to that need. So here's his first petition. Be gracious. Be gracious. Turn to me and be gracious to me. As is your way with those who love your name. So having now received the illuminating word that he cannot get enough of, he discovers through the teaching of God's word that God is a gracious God. Man does not know this and understand this outside of the light-giving understanding that God provides to him. As he prays for this, he prays that God would be pour his grace upon him, that he would be gracious to him. Spurgeon says, if God looks and sees us panting, he will not fail to be merciful to us. He, after now, he who loves, I'm sorry, he loves who the Lord is, and he loves what he does as well. And so, the, the thing that, that grabbed my heart in thinking about this, first of all, is understanding that as all this leads to his final thoughts on, on tears of grief over those who break his law. First is his understanding of, of the word that he makes those three statements in the beginning of these verses. And then his, his petitions are indicative of what God's revealed to him. And if someone, when someone doesn't have some of these, some, when someone's petitions are off, there's something relational with God that's off as well. And the first one here describes this. And the second part I thought was, I didn't really catch my attention, so I read someone make a comment about that and ask that question. He says, the second part of the verse says, and as is your way with those who what? Who love your name. Now, he's more specific here in what it means to, to love his name. I thought, you know, you could have just simply said who love God, uh, who love the law. But here, again, Remember how in, in the Psalms, every time he, he adds a dimension or adds a layer to his thought process, he says to those who love his name. He speaks of those who love his name as opposed simply to saying those who love God. Some have said, and this is, I was trying to see what some people's angles were, that some have said that the psalmist discovers God, who he is, and what he does through his names. And so... I put one here, I believe. I put one here, but El Shaddai, Lord God Almighty. But what he's describing is that he learns to love his name by discovering the names of God, reveal to God his nature and character and who he is and, how, and what he does. 
So I think we've, you've probably read books on it. You've probably had Bible studies on it, on the names of God. The names of God help us understand the scope of who he is, the scope of what he does. And as he discovered God's names, he discovers the scope of who he is and the scope of what he accomplishes. And in doing so, um, recognize and see God's, God's grace that's poured upon him and makes that petition before God. So we could go here. I could take time for, for, for you to, to list a number of one, a number of names, but that is the gist of what he is, is saying here. He says, be gracious. Then he says, Lord, be my, be my protector. Keep steady my steps. Just two aspects of that that he's asking in verse 133, and we'll end on, on this one today. This request of being his protector to protect him from sin. There again, without God's illuminating word, he doesn't see his need for protection from sin. He doesn't see the dangers of it. I mean, without God, you know, how many people have, they play with fire, right? They play with fire, with sinful fire, because they don't understand the dangers of what they're exposed to. God's exposing to him, or rather God illuminates his heart. He says, be my protector in two areas. One, the request is first seen as make my steps steady to your promise. The idea here is that God should make his life safe and secure, fixed and firm. Steadiness, not wobbliness. Again, if you go back and want to contrast with the last two stanzas, we talked about the double-minded man who's, what, unstable in all his ways. Now he's affirming just the opposite through God's illuminating word. He's praying for he would be his protector, protecting from sin. One, that he would be stable, stable and secure. Secondly, what is the, the second part of that verse? Let no iniquity get what dominion over me. The second half of his request and God protecting him from sin is that he would not let sin dominate me. Keep me from sin and keep me from dominating, from that sin dominating me. Interesting petition from God to, to request that. And I, I, and I put these questions for me, trust me. I said, when's the last time I've prayed that prayer? Not just the Lord give me a steady feet, but when would he protect me from being unstable in all my ways? But then, Lord, would you protect me from dominating sins? Being, for not be, I don't want to be enslaved to sin. That he would preserve him. Praise for steady feet. Those steady feet are going to what's going to preserve him from enslavement, from sin that would ensnare him. He wants to be firmly established in the word of God so that he can be free from the terrible tyranny of sin. There again, a very maturing step in, in, in the path of a believer is a desire for not only being firmly established in God's word, but for the purpose of, of, of not wanting to be ensnared and enslaved to, to sin. And so he gives us, we saw two petitions. We're going to see the one, uh, be my deliverer next week. Ask God to deliver him, be present, be my teacher. And then we'll come back on those thoughts about what it means to, to have tears of grief. So we'll come back and complete those next week. We still meet next week, and then we, we will not meet, as, as Nathan mentioned, the following week for, for Easter. So have a wonderful day. We close in a word of prayer and pray for God's blessing upon your day. Father, we thank you. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful, Lord, that you unfolded this word so that even 
the simple can understand. You give us understanding. And in that understanding, Lord, you allow us to petition you that you would be gracious, that you would protect us and guard us. Lord, thank you for the psalmist. And I, I, I complete this even next week, Lord, thinking about this. But just, Lord, help. He's grieved over man's sin. He's grieved over a man who breaks your law. Oh, Lord, may I have such a love for your word that any transgression grieves me, not only in my own life, first and foremost, but then in others as well. So, Lord, I just commit this day to you. Bless these families. Watch over them, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.